Welcome to the Criswell College Chapel Podcast. Through each semester, the entire campus gathers for worship through song and a biblical, challenging, and encouraging message. Speakers include pastors, professors, and local business and nonprofit leaders. At Criswell, we believe spiritual life is vital for everyone. And that is why Criswell's goal in chapel services is to emphasize loving the Lord with all our heart, all our mind, and all our strength. We make leaders who are ambassadors, cultivators, peacemakers, problem solvers, and professionals. While chapel services are tailored to students, we are encouraged by all our guest speakers by knowing that the practicality of what is being spoken is for everyone. To learn more about Criswell College, visit criswell.edu. Thank you for joining us. Today we will be hearing from Pastor Bill Watson. Bill Watson serves as senior pastor of Lake Highlands Baptist Church in East Dallas. He is a two-time graduate of Criswell College and served on the college's staff from 2008 to 2020. He and his wife have four children and live in Lake Highlands. Without further ado, Dr. Bill Watson. Good to see y'all here today. I am really glad to be back here. I feel like I know over half of you still, so it's good to see you guys here. I love this college so much. I love what the Lord did to me here as a student for years. Seemed like for many, 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 many years as a student. I did finally graduate, but I love what the Lord did here when I was a student for me uh, through the faculty, the staff, and the students. I love the, the faculty of this institution. I still know most of them. I studied under a lot of them, learned a lot from them. So if you're a faculty member here, and I'm sure you've heard this before, but you disapprove of anything I say, it's your own fault. So I appreciate what the Lord's done for me through y'all and glad to be here with y'all. Staff, I worked with so many of you for years. One of my fondest memories was working here with uh, uh, just the college staff in general. So glad to see y'all. Uh, but of course, most of all, uh, not, not because I don't love the others, uh, I also want to make sure and let y'all know how much I appreciate the leadership of this college. And uh, just eternally grateful for Dr. Barry Creamer and his leadership here and what that's meant for Criswell. Uh, I don't know if any of us could ever appreciate fully how much he's done for the college and uh, also for me personally. Uh, he's been like a father to me. So Dr. Creamer, I just want to let everybody know I appreciate you and uh, appreciate you having me out here. So. But you students, I'm really here for you today, and I'm glad to be back talking to students again. I love my church, I love my congregation, but I love the students of Criswell College too. So I pray for you guys all the time. Uh, I do that frequently, and it's just a joy to be able to try to encourage you today from John chapter 6. So if you have a Bible with you, turn to John chapter 6. I want to try to encourage you with one of my favorite passages. I was asked to speak on this passage, to speak on Jesus as the bread of life. And I love this chapter. It actually ends as one of my favorite passages in the New Testament. It's meant a lot to me over the years. It's a bit uh, daunting to me to speak to you on this because I typically preach over an hour where I am, and I have 20 minutes to cover 71 verses, which I'm not actually going to talk about all 71 of them. But in the middle of this chapter, there is something I want to communicate to y'all that I think will be helpful to you the way it's been helpful to me over the years, particularly because... Most of, you, well, most of you in here are students. I'm speaking primarily to you students. Just by virtue of being a student, you sort of have uh, built into your life this anticipation of the future, right? That's why you study, I, I hope. It's to try to do something about your future, either to get better at something or maybe take on a new career or something like that. So you have sort of this expectation about your future, if only in terms of career, but in all likelihood in many other ways as well. You anticipate, your mar- you sort of have a hope for what your marital status will be, what kind of job you'll get what kind of income you'll make, how many kids you'll have. You have anticipations about your health, believe it or not. You have all kinds of anticipations. And the reality of life is, I know you know this, it's hard to remember this, 
pretty much nothing you expect comes to fruition the way you expect it to come to fruition. Uh, One of the hardest things of being a disciple of God, of Christ, is that when you get behind Christ in faith at salvation, you have no idea what you're getting into. I mean, initially. I mean, and this is one of the graces of God, that God's okay with that. God will take our little faith, our limited perspective, and He will guide us along the way, but it's almost never in the direction we initially wanted to go. And so, as, as, as I've often said when I was a professor here, God, or rather, Christ is the kind of Savior none of us would have been looking for before we met Him. And in the course of those changes that happen in your life, when things don't work out the way you expected that they would, it's very tempting for your faith to falter. And as a pastor especially, I've noticed that oftentimes when I've got somebody sitting in my office and they're struggling with their faith, one of the dominant reasons is because X, Y, or Z did not turn out the way they thought it would, and so they're struggling with trusting in a God who didn't fulfill their expectations. And this passage is going to be largely about that reality. And, it's not, and, it's, it, and I'm not intending here to rebuke you for having expectations. I want to encourage you today that what God offers in Christ is different usually than what we want. But it's far better than what we want. Far better. And that's something with which Israel struggled a lot. Okay, So we're in John chapter 6. And you, if you know John well, you know the first half of John is called the book of signs. Where you have seven signs that point to who Jesus of Nazareth really is. And, and this is very important. The signs that he does... They're nice. They're wonderful. They're good to be around. I mean, it's healing people. It's feeding people. It's doing all kinds of wonderful. He, when Jesus goes around, blessings just fall from him like water from a waterfall. It's much like in creation when God's presence just overflows with abundance. So when Christ goes around, good things happen, which is good, but also difficult for us. Uh, we're going to see today that there's, there's something we have to understand about the blessings that come from God in Christ. So in chapter 6, we're dealing right after the fourth sign of John. That fourth sign is uh, the feeding of the 5,000. So the chapter starts off with the feeding of, well, more than 5,000, you know, at least a, a few more than that. 5,000 men, 10, 15,000 people. And he, he's fed all these people, and then right after that, right before this, there's that crossing of the sea where the disciples are in the boat, they're rowing, and Jesus walks on the water and gets in the boat, calms the sea, all that kind of stuff. I may have time to comment on that, but again, let's be real, we have 20 minutes, so I don't know that I'll get back to that, but here's the point I want you to understand that God in Christ has just done a great miracle feeding the 5,000 so that the people would understand who Jesus is, right? And there's all kinds of themes going on here. We had time we could talk about how John 6 communicates Christ as a new and greater Moses who's bringing about an exodus from the greater evil of sin, death, and the devil. We could talk about Jesus as being the good shepherd, the new David. We could talk about the messianic undertones. We're not going to do much of that right now. I just want to look at the story right from the middle in verse 22 and following and just kind of patchwork our way through and just show y'all basically one simple point today about Christ and what he means to us, especially when things are not working out as we expect them to, which will happen. So I'm going to start in verse 22, keeping in mind they're coming off that great miracle. This is what we read in John 6, verse 22. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there nor his disciples, they themselves got into boats and went to Capernaum. And, and look at you got if, if you're highlighting anything, highlight this last phrase. They went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. That's great. That's good. We should be really happy right now that they're seeking Jesus. We should do right. And so this is very important to get for this story here. What's happening is you have crowds coming. They've seen the feeding of the 5,000, and they're, they're converging on Jesus. 
and he's just having this explosion of followers. And, 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 and note, uh, I really want you to get this, they're going out of their way to find Jesus. It's no small thing to leave your workplace in the ancient world, leave your village, walk everywhere, walk all the way to the sea, then get in boats, sail around. I mean, you can see these people are looking hard. They're willing to go out of their way to find Jesus Christ. But there is a fundamental problem in their seeking. Okay, there's a fundamental problem. And that starts in verse 25. When they found him, Jesus, on the other side of the sea, verse 25, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? You should already have a hint, by the way, that when they say rabbi, they may have missed some of what the signs have communicated. He's not merely a rabbi, though it's appropriate to call him rabbi. But they say, Rabbi, when did you come here? Verse 26, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, and this, again, but before I read this, just note, they've all come to him, looking for him, which of course is a good thing, and this is how he looks at them. This is what he says. This is not what I think we would be tempted to say. He looks at them and he, uh, he gives them a, a bit of a gentle reprimand. Look at what he says in verse 26. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. And so he just gets ahead of them a little bit and says, hey, let me explain what you're doing here. And I want you all to note, he's not rejecting them or turning them away. He's just helping them understand themselves. So just like when we become Christians and first come to Christ, part of what happens is we don't just learn about him, we learn about ourselves, okay? So he's just going to tell them. He's not going to reject anybody. He's not kicking them out. But he's making this point. You came to see me not because you understand what the signs say about me, not because you know that I'm your eternal Savior, that I'm the bread of life, he'll say in a moment. You came to me because you've learned something important. In my presence, there are lots of blessings to enjoy. And this is true. Whenever you get near Christ or his true people, there are a lot of blessings associated with just being around them, just being around Christ and his people. So they, they got near Christ. They, they know people got near to Jesus before. They found him, and they got sandwiches uh, back in the beginning of chapter 6. Okay? And I'm not, to, I'm not trying to demean what Jesus did back then, but he's saying, you have found me not because you're looking for me. You're looking for the blessings that fall from my fingers. And this is, this is going to be the crux of their issue. And so what he says in verse 27 is, don't work for the food that perishes. I know you all know this passage. He says, but work for the food, verse 27, that endures to eternal life, that leads to eternal life, which the Son of Man, which is himself, all these things we can't talk at length about, which the Son of Man will give you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. So he's addressing what will be evident in just a moment, two real problems. In fact, let's just keep reading, and I'll show you the two fundamental problems that these Israelites have. So what happens is Jesus says to them, or rather, he, he says to them, you know, uh, look for the food that endures to eternal life, work for it in verse 27. And then look what they say in verse 28. He says, work for the food that endures. They say, okay, verse 28, what work must we do to be doing the works of God? Now, when you read that, don't vilify these guys yet. Okay, they're not doing anything wrong here. So you might see that go, oh, see, they're all about works-based salvation. Jesus just said, do the work, not, or he, look what he says in verse 28, do not work for food that perishes, but work for food that endures. So when they say, what are the works of God for us to do? It's not like they're being pharisaical in the way we often oversimplify what a Pharisee was. It simply means they're saying, okay, if we need to do something to get eternal food, what do we do? What do we do for that everlasting food? And Jesus answers, Oh, verse 29, this is the work of God. This is the work that gives you the food or the basis on which you receive the food that lasts forever, that gives eternal life. And it's very simple. I mean, y'all are Protestants, I assume, Baptistic in your understanding of faith and grace. You know we're not saved by works. So what does he say? The work that a believer in Christ does is actually not even really a work in the truest sense, he says. 
Verse uh, 29, the work of God is that you believe in him whom he sent. So you trust in him. I know this is all very first grade Christian gospel for us, that we are to put our trust in Jesus, and on that basis we receive, we don't know how yet in the story, we receive a bread that leads to eternal life, that endures forever, that doesn't perish, a sandwich you can keep on munching on forever. So he tells them that, and they're okay with this. They get, okay, if we've got to trust you, we've got to put our trust in you, we'll do it, great. But I love how, (laughs) look at the nuance of their trust. You're going to find out that they're willing to believe in him, but their belief in him is going to be contingent not on who he is, but on what he has to offer. So what they say is in verse 30, what sign then do you give that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Now, if you're reading all of chapter 6 and you just come off the feeding of the 5,000, y'all get, you're looking at them and thinking, you're a bunch of morons. I mean, he just fed 10, 15,000 people with a few loaves and a few fish, right? And they're saying, well, we'll believe you if you do something epic, something awesome. Then we'll believe you, okay? They're not ignorant of what just happened. They've actually come to find him because of what just happened. So what we're seeing here is something very important to recognize about human nature. And that is that it is possible as a sinful human being to make your trust in Christ contingent on the regular iteration of signs and blessings. In other words, they're not content with the one sign. They need a continuation of God's work in a way that they anticipate before they'll put their trust in Christ. And this is a huge problem because the disciples are going to find out in the life of Christ that there are long seasons of discipleship in which you don't have any of those wonderful blessings. So, you know, Peter, who's going to end the chapter as a hero, he's going to spend much of his life in prison, crucified upside down. There'll be lots of periods of time where Jesus is not handing out free sandwiches. He's asking you to die to give up everything. And so what's interesting here is they are not ready to follow Christ because in order for them to follow Christ, they need another miracle right now. And some of y'all know exactly what that's like. I mean, if we're honest with ourselves, we're all very prone to this tendency to follow Christ as long as the good things and the signs of his love just keep coming. But the moment they stop for a season, we're like, I don't know if I believe in him anymore. I don't know if I can trust him anymore. Despite all the teaching he gave us about the nature of discipleship, the cost thereof, we predicate our faith on continued iterations of blessings. And when those stop, our faith stops, which shows you this. You didn't trust the giver of the blessing. You trusted the blessing. When you allow your faith to falter because things aren't going well right now and you think, oh, the Lord's not working the same miraculous way, first off, you're often just blind to how he actually is working. But secondly, even if he is not working the way you would anticipate, That's a sign to you that you're more interested in the sandwiches than in the one who gives the bread of life. And you've got to be very careful about that. That is a clear sign to you. And I'm prone to the same tendency, the same sin, but nonetheless, that is a big mistake because if that's the way you want to live with Christ, good luck. It's not going to go well for you in this age. I mean, I I, I want to pull in the whole of the gospel here. We'll just hit on a couple of points. You all know that when Jesus talks to the disciples, he's constantly telling them, take up your cross and follow me, and in the age to come, I'll give you new life. I mean, the, the, the thing that Christ has been telling the disciples all along makes very clear, particularly by the second half of John, is that to follow Christ means first suffering, humiliation, and death, then glory, exaltation, and life. And if you understand that pattern, you can see why. If your faith in the suffering and death part of your salvation, that this life, this age, if your faith in that time is predicated on continued blessings, well, your faith isn't going to last. You'll be like the seeds planted on bad soil. You'll fall off the race, as Paul, the author of Hebrews, will talk about. And I, I don't want you to do that. And, and, and I certainly hope you don't want to do that. So one of the things you can learn right off the bat is this. You need to be thinking, praying, how can you, by God's grace, 
have a faith that is not contingent on the iterations of God's blessings continuing daily in your life. A faith that can weather the storm, which if I had time, I'd talk about the significance of that. They just came out of a storm as if to make the point. When Jesus saves his disciples from the storm, he doesn't take them around it, above it. He doesn't take them below it. He takes them right through the middle of the storms, as if to say, being with me means going into the chaos, not out of it. Okay? All that said, their first mistake is they will believe if the blessings keep coming. The second mistake they make, though, look in verse 30. They say, so what sign do you do that we'll uh, see and believe? What work do you perform? Verse 31. It's not just that they want continued blessings. They want specific continued blessings. I love this. They give him a suggestion. So in verse 31, they're like, hey, new Moses, how about, we, we got an idea for you. Here's how we'll believe in you. Verse 31, our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat, quoting Moses. There's a continued new Exodus theme. <laughs> so <laughs> not only do they need continued blessing, they need the blessings that continue to be the ones they want. So remember, the giving of the bread was meant to point to Christ, not to, remind, not to make them want bread. You know, the sandwiches were about the giver, not the sandwiches. And so part of their problem is not just the expectation of continued blessing, it's that when the blessing occurs, it better be the one that I expected. It's the one that I want. And it's particularly the one that meets their felt need, their gut, which Paul will say people driven by their gut are idolaters. That it's, that's, that's sinfulness, it's flesh. And the gut just represents basic passions and desires like hunger. So this is another problem human beings fall into, is that when we look at God, we can make our faith contingent on whether or not what he's giving us is what we think he should be giving us. And we have ideas for him, don't we? I, my idea, you, might, you're, you might have an idea for God about, you know, I need a spouse of this sort. I need a degree of this sort. I need a job of this sort. I need a body of this sort, a health of this sort, friends of this sort. And you go to him and you, and you just expect, hey, I got an idea. You give me these things, I'll believe in you. And if you don't think that's true, you can tell that that's something you struggle with when you don't get those things and your faith falters. So if you don't receive anything your heart desires aside from Christ, if at that point you begin to doubt God, you are a sandwich searcher. That's something I just came up with. I'm never using it again. But seriously, you, that means if, you're, if God doesn't give you X, Y, or Z, when the only thing he's promised you in this age is Christ, it's a sign that you have an agenda. It's not God's agenda, and you cannot place your faith, cannot make it contingent on that thing. Hopefully some of you can just think back in your past or your present and see the ways in which you expected something specific, and it might have been good. There's nothing wrong with bread for the crowd. That's a great gift. But even if it's good, you can't make your faith contingent on that. Disciples must be the kind of disciples who, if you were to find out today that the rest of your life, another 50 years, you're condemned to live in a dungeon alone in some foreign country, spat on every day, dying miserable, cold, and alone. Would you go, I'm not so sure I'm into this anymore? Or would you say, hallelujah, all I have is Christ, and Christ is sufficient. So Jesus is not going to give them what they want. He's not foolish enough to do that. And so it says in verse 32, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, <laughs> Moses gave you bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. I wish I could talk a long time about how it is that we're finding that Moses and the wilderness wandering and the exodus, that was all a metaphor. That, that was a shadow of the glory that was to come in Christ. When he says, your Father offers you the true bread, he's not saying, I'm like the bread of Moses. He's saying, that was like me. I'm real bread. Every time you bite a sandwich for the rest of your life, you should say, this is a metaphor for Christ, right? 
Uh, I realize that's a bit of a trite example, but I'm just saying the bread given to Moses in the, in the people of Israel was just a fragment, a fragment, a shadow of the fullness of what Christ was going to be for them. And so he's telling them, I'm the real bread that comes from the Father. And they say in verse 34, we're going to hop around a lot, going to skip a lot, unfortunately. They say in verse 34, give us this bread always. They don't yet realize that he's not talking about just a better material bread. They still seem to think there's like some kind of fountain of youth-like bread out there, some kind of ambrosia that they can eat and live forever. So now he's going to clarify what he means by the bread, right? Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am that bread. Me. I'm the bread. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now, he's going to explain this in various ways. For instance, he's going to talk uh, in verses 4 and following about how anyone who believes in him, Christ will dwell in that person. And by Christ dwelling in that person, the Father will dwell in that person. And the implication in John's gospel is that insofar as Christ is the word of creation incarnate, when Christ dwells in a believer, the power of creation is now within that believer and it works its way outward toward life bringing life to him, bringing resurrection, eternal life, etc. So there's a lot there we could talk about. That's, that's what really is, I think, in some ways, the gospel basis of Paul's in Christ theology. One of the most common ways Paul will talk about, uh, theolo- or talk about uh, salvation is by talking about us being in Christ. And he's talking about a union that occurs for those who have faith where you are joined inseparably to Christ so that what is true about him is true about you. And he lives forever, therefore. But all that said, we're not going to get into that. We're just going to make this basic point. Jesus is saying, without explaining it yet, in verse 35, if you consume me, you can be sustained by me for eternity. I am sufficient. Not not just that he can help us live, that that feeding on him will help us live forever. He is sufficient for eternal life, meaning you don't need any other bread. You could starve to death in a dungeon and live for eternity, right? So he's saying, you don't need me. You don't need another sign. The thing the sign points to is standing in front of you, inviting you into a relationship based entirely on just trusting me. That's it. And he develops that further in verses 36 and following. But just to kind of get to the the, the main thing I want to get at here. He says in verse 40, This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son, which sounds a lot like the bronze serpent in the Exodus, and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him on the last day. I want you to notice, in fact, I didn't read 39. I need to read 39, but I'll read in just a second. Jesus says two things about himself as the bread of life which oddly parallel the two failed expectations of the Israelites. So he says, I'm the bread of life. We can't get into the mechanics of that. You receive the bread by faith. Just, you, you put faith in Christ, you get the bread of life. But look at the effects. Verse 39 is the first effect of him being the bread of life. He says, and this is the will of him who sent me, verse 39, that I should lose nothing of what he's given me, but raise it on the last day. In other words, what he's saying is, I'm the bread of life, and anyone who receives me in faith from the Father, I will sustain you. That's what he means. I will keep you till the day of resurrection. So it's a bread that even though it might not seem like it in the experiences of your life, Christ is sufficient to sustain you through all the vicissitudes of life, to keep you from faltering, to keep your faith from failing, to preserve you for salvation. And that refers to this age when we need preserving. We need to be maintained. But the second blessing is we're not just preserved by the bread of life. We're actually given new eternal life by the bread of life. So there's preservation in verse 39. Look at verse 40. This is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And again, he says, and I will raise him up on the last day. So you eat this bread by faith. You'll be sustained through the vicissitudes of this present evil age. And after you've suffered for a time like your Messiah, you will receive eternal life forever. That's what that bread does for you. It sustains you and saves you forever. 
kind of, I, I kind of want that bread. And note again that he's sufficient, that you don't need the other things. What's interesting in verse 41, you get, have your little Moses glasses on, they grumble. Remember, remember Israel grumbling in the wilderness over the manna? This is not the bread we want. This is not the blessing we want. And I need you to get the nearsightedness of these people. Because as he's already mentioned at the very beginning of this discourse, he said, don't work for the food that perishes. Work for the food that lasts forever. And they're too foolish to recognize that the very thing they came for passes away. They're already hungry from the last time he gave them what they wanted. And if you pursue God in Christ only based on what you want, you might receive some things from which you will end up hungering again. But if you, will have, if you allow your agenda to be submitted to Christ's agenda for you, you might suffer for a time. There might be delayed gratification of your desires, but I need you to understand this. In the age to come, everything your heart desires will be satisfied. It will be. You won't be hungry anymore. You won't be thirsty. He said you'll never thirst again if you eat this bread. So everything you long for, just, just give it to him and say, I'm going to seek first the kingdom and its righteousness, and then I know at some point in your time and in your way, all the other things will be given to me. And stop expecting him to give them to you now. And just be content with whatever he gives you, which might be nothing, except himself, which is enough. And so uh, I want to, I mean, I'm already out of time halfway through, but we'll just stop here with a couple of points I want to make. First, just to reiterate, you need to prayerfully search your own soul to see, are you more interested in the blessings that come from Christ's hands than the man himself? And the, the barometer, the measure of that's going to be when you don't get what you want from him, do you still trust him? Secondly, is your faith predicated, contingent, on continually receiving blessings at a regular pace? And the way you know that is, whenever you don't receive the kind of blessings you expect, does your faith falter? It's a good sign. You're not looking to Christ. You're looking to the things that fall from his hands. And then I do want to make this one last note, especially because you're wanting to go into ministry. A lot of, I, I assume all of you want to do ministry of some kind, whether it's in a counseling setting or a business setting. Or, but this is very important. Whether you're participating in ministry or leading ministry, do not be foolish enough to build a ministry that is essentially a food truck. So the church has wonderful things in it, fellowship, the assuaging of guilt. These are all things our culture wants really badly. Good place to find friends. Frankly, a lot of people go to churches because it's a good place to find a spouse. And there's all kinds of reasons to be in a church. And, and you need to be wise and recognize that when the 5,000 people were there, Jesus didn't go, so many people, this must be good. Let's just keep doing this, which is what we often do in church. We get a crowd and we uncritically go, well, they're all here talking about Jesus. They're all seeking him. This is good work. And then we give them their latte. We set them down. We inundate them with programs and we meet all their felt needs and we ask nothing of them. We ask no confession. We ask no sacrifice, no intimacy, no community, no dedication, no dying to self. And we sit there and we're content to hand out sandwiches thinking we're doing the work of the Messiah. We're not. The life of the church is found not in all the accoutrements of modern comforts. It's found in the simple means, ordinary means of grace, which is Christ in Scripture, Christ through prayer, and Christ through fellowship. So as you go out into ministry, do not be tempted by the mobs that show up seeking Christ to believe that simply meeting their felt needs is somehow discipleship. Be very careful of that and just kind of prayerfully work through that, okay? I'm not saying crowds are bad. But there's only one good crowd in the whole New Testament, Acts 2. All the other crowds are a problem. The early church fathers were scared of crowds. They used to write about this quite a bit. I just read in Cyril, Jerusalem. I'm sorry, Cyprian. Cyprian has this whole thing about be careful of crowds. Crowds usually are not a mark of good things happening. Not always. Anyway, all that said, if you find in your own heart, by 
prayerfully asking the Lord to reveal who you really are, that you might be in danger of seeking the sandwiches and not the sandwich giver, the gifts and not the gift giver, you know, not seeking Christ as the bread of life, then simply do this. Remember that in this passage, in a place we didn't read, actually, <laughs> back in, uh, I forget which verse it is, he says uh, in verse 37, that all the Father sends to him, he will save. He says, the Father draws people to me. So what I'm getting at is this. If you find that you are more drawn to the gifts that fall from his fingers than the man himself, the God-man himself, then you don't go out there and try harder. Don't go out there and like, you know, grit your teeth and be like, I'm just going to stop wanting the things. Go to the Father who draws people to Christ and say, Father, please draw me to Christ. Feed me the bread of life. You know, help my unbelief. Strengthen my faith in Jesus. Fix my gaze on him. And as you prayerfully and honestly confess your selfish desires for the things that satisfy now, and then you ask God to fix your gaze on Christ, he will do it. And then the bread of life, Jesus Christ, will sustain you through all the junk you're going to have to experience in this age. And then in the age to come, he'll resurrect you to eternal life where everything will be just as it should be. And if you want a good example of this, this is what I'm going to close on. Peter. I love Peter. He gets a bad rap. He's probably the wisest of all the disciples. That may be the reason he gets so much play. We often think, oh, he's a loudmouth. That's why they're always talking about him. Maybe they always talk about him because he was one of the wisest of them all. But here, at least, Peter's going to get it right. Look at verse 41. I'm sorry. Further, verse 52. After Jesus talked about himself as the bread of life, there are a bunch of people who say, I don't want that. I want the felt needs Jesus. I don't want the Messiah who demands my allegiance. So in verse 52, it says, uh, uh, No, I need to keep even moving, actually. Excuse me. Verse 60. When they all heard this, they said, verse 60, who can listen to these hard things that he's saying? Then in verse 66, it says this, that the crowds left him, which isn't likely to help his pastoral career. You had 5,000 people and lost them in a moment? Uh, So don't be discouraged if you speak truth and it doesn't lead to hordes of people adulating at your feet, okay? All that said, he, he tells them the truth about himself. Most turn away. And then Jesus looks at the 12 in verse 67, and I love this little little conversation. It's my, one of my favorites because I have very often, by God's grace, found myself at the end of my situation on my face in tears saying the same things Peter said. And this is a good thing. So he looks at the, the 12 and he says, do you want to go away as well? Verse 67. Do you want to go with them? Do you want to go chase the sandwiches? Some Peter looks at him and says, not, no, we deserve to be here. He doesn't say, no, we're too smart for that. He doesn't do anything at all. He just looks at Jesus, and he has one thing to say. Look what he says. <laughs> Master, I, where else are we going to go? We, we've tried every other, other, other source of hope out there, and there's nothing. We, we have no confidence in anything than this. Just, just this. You're the one with the words of eternal life. It's you. You're the one who speaks eternal life. In verse, uh, the, and then the next verse he says, and we have believed and come to understand I wish we could talk about believing and then coming to understand that you are the Davidic kingly Messiah, Savior of the world, the Holy One of God. So at that moment when you realize your sinful desire for the things of this world instead of the, the one who gives blessing, ask God to draw you to Christ and then get on your face and say, Lord, I have nowhere else to go. I'm just going to stick around. And one of the greatest virtues of a disciple is just sticking around. Perseverance is one of the greatest virtues of God's people. And all perseverance is, is not going and doing great things. It's staying under the reign of Christ. It's limping under his benevolence. It's just saying, I have nowhere else to go and staying there. And he will raise you to eternal life. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for Christ. Thank you for this bread of life. Thank you that we don't have to scrounge around about 
looking for scraps at the bottom of life's barrel that we can instead be preserved by our Messiah, who is our bread, our sustenance. I pray, Father, right now that you help us to know ourselves, to know whether we really want the Messiah or whether we're just chasing the blessings that come from being a Christian. And as you reveal to us our true heart, draw us to Christ, fix our gaze on him, and preserve us until the day of resurrection when everything will be as it should be. And we pray this, Father, in the name of your glorious Son, who is our bread, in the name of your, in the name of your Son, by your Spirit. Amen. Thank you once again for listening to the Criswell Chapel podcast. Please make sure to visit criswell.edu to learn more about Criswell College. We hope that you will join us again soon. God bless you.